podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. You're about to hear a chat I had with Michael McMullen looking back at the last decade in snooker as we head into the, the roaring 20s. We thought we'd look back at the last 10 years because it's been a time of huge change. Of course, it started with Barry Hearn taking over at World Snooker and uh, it's featured so many memorable moments, but also a lot of significant changes in the sport. Now, we recorded this actually about half an hour before World Snooker announced that they were no longer World Snooker. They're now the World Snooker Tour, so that's why we don't uh, call them that. But that's what, of course, we'll remember to call them in the future. Um, and also, we had to stop recording after about 45 minutes because we had to go and commentate on the Championship League. So there are a number of things that I wanted to talk about that... We just didn't have time to because we spent a lot of time on things that happened on the table and a lot of memorable moments and, and tournaments and finals and so on. Um, but a couple of things that I wanted to mention, and maybe we'll talk about them in greater depth in a future podcast. One of them was the way the media has changed in the last 10 years, the way social media has affected traditional media. And at times, I think, a rather unhappy relationship between the two, the pitfalls of social media, a few players have fallen foul of it and actually also and I think this is something I'll talk about in the future the the increasingly and I'm talking about Twitter here more than anything else the increasingly negative tone of discourse and the fact that sometimes there isn't any discourse it's just sort of insults flying around it's not a place for nuance and I think uh, it's bred a sort of negativity that I just have no time for um, so that's one thing that we maybe will discuss in the future there's another issue, I think, with sponsorship. Um, when I started in snooker, most tournaments were sponsored by tobacco firms and the writing was on the wall for that and, of course, it got outlawed. Now most tournaments are sponsored by betting firms and you've got to think at some point in the future that will also be curbed. I think snooker has a rather uneasy relationship with gambling, quite rightly. It clamps down on match-fixing and players getting involved in betting, but you go to all these tournaments and it's all about gambling. So... I think that's something that, that has changed and something that maybe as we head into the new decade might need to be addressed. That's nothing against the, the firms that sponsor the tournaments. They're big, big companies. They've got a lot of money. They're putting it into the prize funds and players are making a living from it. But there is an issue there that I think at the moment isn't really being looked at and may come to a head at some point, maybe in the next 10 years. Um, I wanted to talk about the television landscape and digital landscape, the way that's evolving and I think uh, World Snooker or the World Snooker Tour as we must call them now are alive to the fact that there are many different platforms now in which people can watch the game they reckon you can watch it in every country in the world on, on some platform or another and one thing that Barry Hearn has done to his great credit is signed long-term deals with these broadcasters the broadcasters are the most important people in the sport in terms of putting money in. The players are the most important because they showcase the game. But in terms of actually putting the money in, if you didn't have television, you wouldn't have a professional game. And he signed so many long-term contracts, some in China, of course, Eurosport, still got the BBC on board, which is no mean feat. ITV have come back into snooker. Sky have gone away, so we've lost them. But around the world, on Dazone and on all these other platforms, lots of people are watching snooker. And that, of course, is hopefully creating new fans and bringing... Uh, new people into the game. Uh, and finally, I suppose the global nature of snooker. Um, there was a very slick, very well put together video on YouTube. You can watch it there announcing the, the World Snooker Tour changes and advertising the fact that snooker is a global sport. I would say that it isn't quite there yet in terms of the professional game. I think there are issues around the fact that still qualifiers are played in the UK. It's still very much 
um, to the benefit of UK players, it's much harder if you come from another country, even though, of course, in China they have massive investment, but there are a lot of places where people just can't afford to travel to the UK and become a full-time snooker professional. But I would say this finally before we get into the chat. For the first time, and I've been working in snooker now for 23 years, actually working in professional snooker, for the first time in that time, I would say that snooker is in the state that it deserves to be in, in terms of the sport that we all love. And I would say that although I don't think the professional game can claim to be truly global yet, for the first time, the global pretensions that it has are justified and achievable. A lot of work's been done, not just by Barry Hearn at World Snooker Tour, but also the WPBSA, Jason Ferguson, doing sports development work and trying to just spread the word around the world. And it is starting to work. And hopefully in the next 10 years, that will push on. Whether snooker gets in the Olympics or not, I don't know. Whether that's important or not, I don't know. But what is important is that people see it, start to play the game, we get more players from around the world, and then we can say that it is global. And hopefully, although the British base is important, hopefully it won't be as dominated by Britain in terms of where the circuit's played in the next 10 years. Anyway, there's a lot more to be discussed, and you'll hear that discussion right now. I was talking to Michael McMullen just a few days ago. So that was the decade that was. Uh, and I suppose, you know, when we look back in any sort of sphere, a decade, sometimes people try to artificially sort of make one decade look like it's one thing. Um, but in snooker, they sort of have been. The 70s was about the sort of the first flowerings of television, the, the growth of the early professional circuit. The 80s is the UK snooker boom and Steve Davis's dominance. The 90s is Stephen Hendry's dominance and uh, the opening up of the game, which brought us a lot of new faces and some of the old stars sort of disappearing. And then the next decade, I guess, was one of decline. We lost tobacco sponsorship, a lot of sort of uh, internecine civil wars and, and problems and the circuit shrunk. And at the very end of the decade, Barry Hearn steps up, becomes World Snooker chairman and has transformed things. The last decade has been one of resurgence. I did an interview with Barry for the magazine to mark 10 years. And as I was talking during it, I was trying to get this from him. Was even he surprised by the extent? I think the rest of us all are, even those of us who were most aware of how untapped so much of the game's potential was going into the decade, didn't really think it was going to reach the level it has in terms of the number of tournaments there are, the amount of money they're playing for in them. And people talk about the overseas growth of the game. What about the revival in Britain? Because maybe about 10 years ago, you were looking at maybe four big events a year in Britain. One of those was the Welsh, which was only really seen in Wales. Now it's about 10 or 11 full-scale major tournaments in Britain with big crowds, big venues and big money every season. What an unbelievable transformation it's been. Yeah, it's a little bit of sort of careful what you wish for stuff, isn't there? For the players, a lot of them said, you know, we, we feel like part-timers, we don't, we don't have enough tournaments. And one of Barry's first steps was, OK, well, I'm going to get you back playing. And, of course, it wasn't all at, at the start, you know, £200,000 first prizes. The mm -hmm. BTCs came in. That was a way of just establishing a few tournaments, getting, you know, some playing opportunities. And players had to sort of also get used to new culture because previous to that, they'd basically run the game themselves. I mean, the WPBSA initially, because snooker sort of became big out of nowhere, it was a cosy little club run by players. And it sort of stayed that way, really. Um, and there was, as I say, there was a sort of culture change that players had to, had to get used to. And it, it took some of them a bit of time, I think. Yeah, and some of them never did. Yeah. And actually, the prime example is Stephen Hendry. And he will be the first to acknowledge that he, as much as he felt it was good for the circuit, it wasn't good for him that you had all these tournaments. 
tournaments now, he admitted he couldn't get motivated to play in the PTCs, which were really important because there were so many of them, and proportionately in terms of rankings, they were very important. So there were some like that who never really uh, embraced it. Then you have the other side of the coin, the people who really embraced it. And let's say the classic example of that is Stuart Bingham. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the top players didn't go to that Australian Open a lot of the years. He went there, he won it, and it completely transformed his career. It was a massive turning point. He ended up as world champion, and he's kind of gone from strength to strength since then, really. He's won more tournaments and had a wonderful career. So people talked about splits in the game. That, in the early part of the old decade, was a significant split in itself. Those who wanted to embrace the new era and make the most of it, uh, and those who didn't really, when it came to it, want to be full-time players and didn't want to put in that kind of uh, commitment all the time, which I guess is, is fine if that's the way you... Uh, if that's the way you approach it, but hugely significant. And I think you used the word culture there. Uh, that's exactly what it was. It was a whole new culture in the game. And you're right as well, it wasn't all big tournaments with big money at first. In fact, until the Home Nation series began, really the number of big full-scale events hadn't really increased all that much at all. But we've seen over the last few years, those events have come in. Uh, we've had, uh, obviously, the Coral Series events, which have been absolutely wonderful. And there's been continued growth in China as well. Yeah, absolutely, and, and and prize money's gone up. I mean, it was three point six million when the decade started. It's now fourteen point six. It's going to go up again. This new Saudi Arabian event's going to going to tip that up. Let's talk about some of the the really great events that have come along. Um, I think that maybe the first one um, that sort of really people sort of understood the changes were happening was the German Masters. Mm. I mean, Germany, uh, you know, the popularity was already there. It hadn't been at all embraced by the pre by previous regimes. Um, the Tempodrome in Berlin is an incredible place, um, especially when it's one table. I mean, it really is a wonderful venue. And I remember when Mark Williams won the first one there, 2011, even he, and we know what Mark's like, he not, doesn't like to sort of show too much emotion, but even he, you could see it meant something to him. You know, something's changed here. It's a bit like Wembley Conference Centre, actually. You know, obviously that's gone now. This, the Tempodrome, sort of came along to, uh, to replace it. You compare that to the first steps they took into Germany in the 90s, which at times were just an embarrassment because, yeah, there was, there was a bit of popularity there, but they were going to the wrong places. They weren't marketing it properly. And I remember just before Christmas 1995 uh, watching a tournament in Germany on uh, Eurosport, I think it probably was, either that or Screen Sport, whichever it was at the time. There was just nobody there watching for most of the matches, an absolute embarrassment to the game. But of course, now under this regime, if you're going to do something like that, you're going to do it properly. And it was very ambitious from the start. It's not like they went in a smaller venue and then moved up to the Tempodrome. They went there from the very first year of it. And yeah, I think the German Masters did signify a lot because Barry made that a priority early on, even before I think he'd got sponsors or television or anything like that, or a venue, anything like that in place. He made that a priority to get an event on in Germany and a big event at that. And that ambition has certainly been rewarded. Yeah, and you just see, like, because... You know, we talk about the interest on Eurosport and you can talk about viewing figures, but you can't see those people. They are literally just numbers. But when you go to Germany and you actually see the incredible interest, it doesn't seem that much interest in playing actually over there, but in terms of watching, they love it. And, and the players, I know, love to, to go there. I mean, they've just had the qualifiers. I know Karim was very disappointed to miss out. The defending champion didn't qualify. Um, but or, yeah. the, or the man he beat in the final, actually. They'll yeah, both be missing. Absolutely, yeah. So it, it's, um, it's, it's become a great annual tournament. Another one, um, not a ranking event, but uh, who cares? Champion of Champions. Mm. Um, and it does what it says on the tin. I mean, they are all winners. Sometimes they have to top it up because there aren't enough winners. But um, it, it, it's, it's kind of, in a way, 
it's just a tournament that makes sense. People can understand what it is. Yeah, they used to have the old Champions Cup, didn't mm-hmm. they? And uh, there were so few tournaments in those days <laughs> that even with a field of 10, yeah. they were having to bring in top-ups. One year they brought in uh, Jimmy White and said he had qualified as the people's champion, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, was fair enough, I suppose, because they had to get someone in and Jimmy was still sort of a top player in those days. Yeah, I mean, th- this is the thing. It's another thing Barry's talked about is trying to have differences between events. Mm. So all those Coral Series events, these are for the players who've been the most overall consistent in the ranking events. And the champion of champions, as you say, has, for the most part, there's been you know a little bit of uh, work done to get certain mm. players yeah, in yeah, yeah. and maybe to keep others out yeah. at the same time. But yes, generally, these are the players who, are, uh, who have won tournaments over the last year. And I said this on a previous podcast, it sort of underlined the status of the champion of champions that Mark Williams wasn't in it, because even though at the time he was maybe ranked third, he's ranked second now, uh, he hadn't won a tournament, therefore he wasn't in. Mm. Home Nations, um, funnily enough, and this is, this is um, maybe, well I won't say who was involved, but I overheard a discussion between some people from World Snooker and um, some representatives from China about, and, and they were saying the Chinese were saying, "Well, why is it called the Home Nations? It's home to you." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not yeah. home to you know, yeah. and, and and that may be something that will change. It's a little bit parochial, but the actual series makes sense. It's the, the British series, I guess you can call it. It's, um, it's a fair point, but you see, I think Home Nations is a British term. I don't mm. think there is anywhere no, else right, in yeah. the world, yeah. you know, yeah. that you, you have a group of countries, and it's because of the history and the politics mm. and and everything like that. But uh, but yeah, like I say, I mean, this this is what has changed a lot now that snooker it has underlined the fact that it remains massively popular in the UK because we're able to go around and have all these events and think how different the winter would be now without them yeah. you know you can almost mark it out it's like the English Open well that's kind of the sign yeah. that winter is coming Northern Ireland Open it's almost the start of the run up to Christmas mm. now the Scottish is the week before Christmas and then you have the Welsh in the spring as it's been for the best part of uh, of 30 well, years I, I think the Welsh has been sort of revitalised actually I mean, yeah. it's been there for years and years but it was always a little. I mean, the prize money was always low for the Welsh, you know, or it would become that way certainly in 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 recent times. But now it's part of a series. It kind of, I think it it, it has been given a bit of a shot in the arm, actually. Yeah, yeah, and I think the Welsh actually even before there was the Home Nations, they had already introduced that best of seven format for most rounds. I think that's great. I think that really works for it. I think if we still only had a small number of tournaments, you couldn't be having them uh, best of seven, because. If you're only going to have six or seven tournaments, you need to give players a bit more of a, of an opportunity. Best of seven might be a bit too harsh. But I think they've got it just right with that, actually. It's an awful lot of matches to fit into seven days, and sometimes it can be a bit hard to keep up with. But it means that in the course of those four events, and as I say, three of them come pretty close together, you get so many stories happening, and so many players are going to get an opportunity to come through and have their moment in the sun. And I think it was great, you know, in, in the early days of it, we had some wonderful stories with the winners. The Yang Wenbo, the very yeah. first one, jumping around the, the venue in Manchester. The best celebration we've ever yeah. seen yeah. at the end of someone winning a tournament. The Mark King story was obviously fantastic. Mm-hmm. And even little things like when Marco Fu played John Higgins in the final uh, and played so well to beat him. And Marco didn't have any of his family there, but John was nearby, so we said... Well, look, you know, it's Christmas. We're going to come back and have a bit of a party at the house. Why don't you join us? Just little stories like that as well. Um, So, yeah, a wonderful uh, addition to the circuit. It was ridiculous when you think about it all those years not to have a tournament in Scotland, Mm. you know, which has had such a big part in the game's history. And there has to be a tournament, at least on the island of Ireland, Mm. somewhere along the way, and there hasn't always been. So, yeah, all positive things to say. About uh, the home nations, yeah, and also they're linked up. They are a series, so they kind of this continuity, and that, that brings us to what's now known as the Coral Series. And in particular, I think that the, we've only had it once, but the Tour Championship, um, which is the event for the top eight. Of course, it goes thirty-two World Grand Prix, sixteen players, 
and then the top eight this season in the Tour Championship. Longer matches, which was sort of going against the tide of popular sort of belief that, it, that everyone's had shorter attention spans. We've only had it once. It was a fantastic tournament. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I had massive expectations of it, and actually my expectations were too low because it was even better than I thought it was going to be. I loved the old world match play, yeah. and, and that's basically what it is. It's, it's, it's the match play brought back. Um, but yeah, I mean, the point you make about the fact that longer matches can still attract big audiences. Well, look at the figures for the Tour Championship. They were absolutely wonderful. It helped that we had so many great matches along the way. But if you have great players who've had to play great for most of the season to get into it, and you have them in that mostly one-table environment playing long matches, it's pretty much a guaranteed winner. It can't not be a wonderful event. And even from the start of the season, the players really recognised it. They were talking about, well, my big target now is to get into the Tour mm. Championship. Because players know what makes a great event, and they knew that was going to be one. Yeah, Matt Hewitt uh, from, uh, well, he used to be Pro Snooker Blog, now WPSA. He does all the various ranking lists and the races to this, mm. that, and the other. He's in his element. There's so many now. There's a new one, the European series. He's got, he's got another one to contend with. I think Matt has given up sleeping now because <laughs> you know he, he needs to stay awake all the time to keep on top of all these things. He just has an inexhaustible capacity for uh, oh. for new lists and new yeah. things, and uh, he loves it all. Absolutely. Well, we'll come on shortly to sort of talking about some of the great moments and matches and, and of course, players of the decade. But I think also we should... We should maybe now start to question a few of the decisions being made. Um, the shootout was a, a sort of innovation that, although not everyone was on board with, it kind of it was three days of a bit of fun in Blackpool initially. Then it became a ranking tournament, and a lot of people would say that sort of cheapens the achievement of winning what you might call a proper ranking tournament. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you'd be one of them, I'm guessing. Well, I mean, look. I mean, this is a wider point. It's not just about the shootout. It used to be not so long ago, winning a ranking event meant coming through a field with most of the top players in it. You had to play well over the course of a week. Uh, and towards the end, you're going to be playing at least best of nine, probably best of 11 in the semi-final, and then winning a two-session final on the last day. There are too many tournaments now where you don't have to do those things. And I think a lot of events have actually perhaps cheapened the uh, the status of winning a ranking title. I'd love to see that in the next day, decade, actually. Some of those events like Riga and Gibraltar beefed up a bit more. Mm. Because, I mean, they've got big first prizes now. If you're playing for 10 grand, then it makes sense to play it over three days and short matches. But now they're playing for big money in these events. Why not spread them out over the week? Now, I know there are other things at stake, like venues and the logistics of it all. But I think it needs to be looked at that you could make those longer tournaments, even if they were only five days. And then not have this thing where you can win a ranking title by playing well just over a weekend. And that certainly applies in the case of the shootout. I mean, how can you possibly base ranking points and players getting into big events and their futures on a tournament where, let's be honest about it, the crowd are shouting at you and roaring things. and It just doesn't sit well with me at all. And I agree with you. I think when it was there as an event on its own, it wasn't my cup of tea, but I know for a lot of people it was, and it was very popular. But to be given ranking points for it, I don't really think that makes a great deal of sense. And, you know, whole careers can turn on it. You can get into the Crucible on the back of winning it and then maybe go on and win the World Championship. Or equally, you can miss out on one of the big events by going out early from it. But look, it's there now. And I think Clive Everton put it well. He said, in the bigger scheme of things, it's probably not worth uh, you know, fighting that battle over it any longer. Not least because Perry's not <laughs> going to change his mind anyway. No, but I think, what from my perspective, like the people that go to it, 
I don't think anyone's going to say, well, I'm not going to go and watch the shootout and, and have, a, have a skinful because it's it's not a ranking tournament. You know, people mm. who go there couldn't care less about no, rank, absolutely, yeah. ranking points. They're there for a good time and, and to have a bit of fun, which is fine. Um, and also, it hasn't really worked in terms of, I suppose one of the arguments was, OK, well, we'll get all the top players in it then if, it, if it's a ranking tournament. That hasn't actually worked. Um, I think this year may be slightly different because it's part of this series where there's 150 grand, also the top prize has gone up. Um, but a lot of the top players... It's not their sort of thing because mm. they because because they're the recognisable names. They're going to get the stick if anyone's going to get like stuff shouted at them. It's going to be people like yeah, John Higgins yeah, yeah. and Mark Selby and so on. Um, be interesting to see who enters this year. One of the other uh, sort of things you hear players talk about is the the sort of top heavy nature of the prize money structure. So there are a lot of big first prizes, yes, but then maybe it sort of tapers down a little bit too harshly, um, it lower down in the in the tournaments. Now, of course, players. And every snooker player I've ever known looks at it from their perspective. Yes. At, at, not only as a player, but also where they are in the world rankings. That's always been the case, and that's probably always going to be the case. But um, I guess the, they may have a point. The only thing is, though, what they don't see, I think, is that very often the first prize is used as a sort of publicity tool, in yeah. effect. You know, this is worth 200000 to the winner. It sounds like the tournament, therefore, has a bit of cachet. Yeah, I, I don't have a major problem, actually, with the distribution of the prize funds. What, what I maybe have an, uh, an issue with, and I think this is what a lot of the players talk about, is the fact that it's one pound for one point, and that, therefore, those huge disparities in prize money mm. are reflected in the ranking system. Now, Barry says that there are reasons why the bigger money tournaments should have more ranking points, and I understand all of that. But I was talking to Joe Perry about this the other day, someone who talks about it a, a lot of the time. It, you, you can do that without it being one pound for one point. You can do what they do in other sports. You can say, well, you know, if you've got this much prize money, you're at this level of ranking points, but have a bit more even distribution. I mean, you know, you're talking now about players having over a million ranking points and things like that. Back sort of 30 years ago, mm. you could be top of the rankings with something like 50 points. Mm. Um, because winning a ranking event outside of the World Championship was six points. Yeah. <laughs> it was basically one point around. Yeah. And actually, in those days, whenever you looked at the ranking list, you mm. thought, that's actually yeah. pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, so y you have situations where you look at players' rankings, excuse me, and you find them very hard to understand. You look at someone who might be sort of 27, 28 in the rankings, and you think, but he's had a lot of good tournaments recently. And then you look at it and realise... Well, they were maybe home nations events, which count for maybe half as much as some of the tournaments in China. And equally so, you can see someone ranked, you know, inside the top 16 or quite close to it. And you think, well, how is he there? And you think, well, he's not had that many good tournaments, but they were the right ones. Now, you, you could say that's the case in other sports as well. And that, you know, the big money events do naturally become the biggest and most prestige tournaments. So don't have a major problem as such with ranking point allocation being linked to the amount of prize money on offer. I just don't think it has to be linked directly in a one-for-one -one situation. And a lot of players feel that way now. And I think there could be a compromise reached where you know Barry gets to stick with that system, the prize money-based system that he wants, but the players also get it a bit more equitably distributed. Yeah, because if you take the, the system that you mentioned in the 80s, say, so, say the English Open had been going then, you would have got six points for winning it, and you would have got ten for winning the World Championship. Mm. Now you get 70,000 points for winning the English Open and 500,000 for winning the World Championship. And that will probably increase because with the Saudi Arabian tournament coming along, I'm sure they'll want to change the World, World Championship prize money to make sure that that then becomes the biggest again. So I would imagine next season, World Champion will maybe be getting £600,000. But then again, the whole nation's money might go up as well. Um, yeah, I mean, you talk about that, you know, the World Championship being 10 points and other tournaments being six, maybe that was a not enough of a disparity. Maybe the World Championship should stand out a bit more. But I think now it maybe stands out a bit too much. Stuart Bingham came within one match of being world number one. 
Um, I think if the world final had had a different outcome in 2016, he would have been world number one at that time. And nobody really would have felt Stuart Bingham was, was the best player in the world. And that was because he'd earned so many points from winning the World Championship the previous year. The one thing I think that has worked really well is, uh, and it's one of those things that people say, oh, we can't change it, we can't change it, and then they changed it, and it was it was a great success, and that's the fact that the ranking list now updates after every mm. tournament. I mean, it's amazing to think that it used to be, you know, you, you if you get in the top 16, you might squeeze in at 16, and you're there the whole year. Regardless of any results, you're there the whole year. You get so many great narratives now as well. I mean, almost every tournament, it's there's something to be playing for. It's like, oh, okay, mm. he needs to do well to yeah. get into the Grand Prix, or... Then you get, you get into one of those Coral Series events and it's like, well, he's got to do well in this one to get into the next one. And then you're watching who's entered what, who's qualified for what in a number of cases. It used to be just the end of season scramble to get into the top 16 or whatever. Now it happens a number of times over the course of the campaign. And as you say, it, it's, it's almost hard to imagine now it, it ever actually been, uh, been any different. Well, let's look at um, sort of players uh, over the last 10 years. And it's worth saying... Right now, if we look at the ranking list now, as we record this, so uh, as the Masters begins, top 16, of the of those members of the top 16 as it stands now, 10 of them were members of the top 16 when the decade wow. started. Wow. So, so that <laughs> suggests that there hasn't been what you would think with more playing opportunities, which is more and more you know top players winning tournaments. Now... There's various reasons for that. One is that the players are really good. You know, we're talking about Hall of Famers in, mm. in many cases. who's still in the 16. I do think this flat draw has been not entirely successful in terms of bringing players through. You know, you turn pro, it's hard anyway to establish yourself. Um, under the old system, it was hard. But now, coming in, round one, Mark Selby. Thank you very much. Next tournament, round one, John Higgins, etc., etc. Well, that, that guy, Amiri, didn't he have to play yeah. Trump in, like, yeah. I think, two out of three tournaments? Maybe yeah. it was even two in a row. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And... We know Karen Wilson came through when the Shanghai Masters. That was under the old yeah, tier system, yeah. actually. Um, so maybe there haven't been as many new winners as we would expect, as there were when the game went open, and suddenly you know a lot of the old guard were just rolled over. Then yeah, I think the the, the tiered system, the way it had gone, you had to get through. You you described it once as like swimming through glue, yeah. <laughs> because you had to get through so many rounds yeah. to actually get in front of the cameras. Mm. Now you look at the Saudi Arabian system that they're going to have, mm. every player um, will have to win a maximum of two matches, I think it is, to get to the round where the top players come in. Now, that actually was the format back in the 90s, and I think that was what worked best. Mm. It doesn't have to be, a tiered system doesn't have to be the top 16 come in last and everyone else has to scrap it out. The system then, as they'll have in Saudi Arabia, is the top 32 mm. all come in at the same time. So that means nobody has to win more than two matches to get to that point. And I think that would probably be a better way of doing it. But again, I don't think Barry is going to change his mind on that because he's made such a big thing about mm. the flat draw being uh, the way it has to be. In other sports, you have qualifying tournaments all the way. I mean, ATP tennis events, the top players. In fact, I think very few places are actually given to qualifiers. Uh, so it's even harder, in a sense, in that way. But I do think whatever system you have, and there are merits of, of the different ones, I think the main reason that it hasn't changed as you pointed out there, so much at the top of the game is just what you said. The players who were there at the start of the decade are just so good, and the players who have come through trying to challenge them 
just simply aren't as good. So whatever system you had, I think it would have been more or less the same. Yeah, and although there's, there's obviously seeding and so on, the, the, the top players now have to come in at the first round. So mm. there's not that protection, if you want to call it that, that, that there used to be. I think Barry's attitude is, and, I, and like, like with most people, it comes down to where you're from. He would say, well, I started with nothing, mm. you know, and I grasped every opportunity I had and I've become successful. Why can't you do the same? Fair enough, but... It's hard, you know. Yeah. It's hard when you draw Ronnie first round. It's hard when you draw Sean Murphy, all these really big players. When you're still, I mean, I know they've got a two-year card now, but when you're still sort of finding your way, because totally professional, it's not like playing in the amateur game. You know, suddenly you're there. And what's changed, of course, is you're now playing, you're now actually seeing the top players. I mean, it used to be when you turned pro, like you say, you'd have to win eight matches in some qualifying venue. You wouldn't yeah, see Steve yeah, Davis yeah. or Stephen Hendry there. You, know, you wouldn't mm. see them until you know the final stages. Now, you know, day one of your career, you could be playing one of them. You know? I, I remember under the old tier system, the mercantile, I think it was in 87. Now we're talking. Yeah. Now, everyone <laughs> played in that because everyone played in everything yeah. in those days. In the last 16 of that tournament, because everyone had had to play under this tiered system, so everyone had to come through at least two rounds. In the last 16, there were only five of the top 16 in it. Mm. Now, under that system, if, if you structure it and schedule it in a certain <clears throat> way, the top players are coming in against guys who have already sharpened themselves up over a match or two. So in a sense, there's perhaps more opportunity to come through from the lower end of the rankings. If you're playing someone who's coming in cold, as it is now, you're seeing the top players playing low-ranked players a lot of the time, getting themselves in the groove over the first couple of rounds. And then if you do get to play them on the TV table in round three or whatever, everyone's played themselves in, so you've got less of a chance of, of beating the top players. So my own view is it would be in everyone's interests to go back to more of a tiered system. But a lot of the players don't agree with that. I, I know that there were some guys who actually were considering their futures in the game, but decided to continue because they liked the tiered mm. system. Because it sounds like it suits them. I'm not sure it actually does. Mm. Okay, well, I'm going to hand you now a hot potato, right. uh, metaphorically. Yes. Um, player of the decade. Now, yeah. I, I was thinking about this. I think there's probably, and there's been a lot of, you know, big moments and, and great victories and, and great matches and performances. But I think it probably comes down to a choice between three players. I think it probably comes down to Ronnie O'Sullivan, Mark Selby, and I would argue Judd Trump as well. Trump is one of the players who has actually emerged in this decade. I mean, we knew about him previously turned pro in the previous decade, but very early in the decade, of course, he came of age, he won 2011, won the China Open, mm. the World Final, etc., etc., and has ended the decade spectacularly. Yeah. Uh, Mark Selby has won more ranking titles than anyone else during the decade. He's won 17. Um, Ronnie O'Sullivan, I'm going to use the term triple crown here, has won more of the triple crown events than anyone else. He's won eight. Selby's won seven. Um, so let's start with uh, Mark Selby, who would probably, I mean, spoiler, would probably be my choice, actually. Yeah. Because he was world number one for four years. He won three world titles. He had that spell in the middle of the decade of, of what looked like proper dominance. Um, and he's won, like, he's won all but one of his ranking titles. I think, yeah, he's won 16, I think, in the decade. Mm. 17 in total. He's all but one of the ranking titles in this decade. So he has performed in this 10-year period. And he's also the main reason why O'Sullivan hasn't achieved more mm. in this decade. I think the World Final in 2014, I wouldn't say it was the best match of the decade, but it was certainly, in my mind, the most significant. Yeah. I think if O'Sullivan had won that and moved on to six world titles, he would have won three in a row. My guess is he might very well have overtaken Hendry by now. Mm. So on that basis, I think that has to count for something as well, that Selby has been so significant in the decade. It's very close between those two, actually. I, I think Trump, OK, he can be in the discussion, but... I don't think he quite 
you know, is up there with the level of the other two. You just have to give it to, to Selby on the grounds that he won three world titles during the decade, whereas O'Sullivan won two. I mean, it's as close <laughs> as that between them. Um, but yeah, you can make a very strong case for O'Sullivan as well. If you were going to give it to O'Sullivan, that would be the first time ever that you would say the same player had been player of the decade two decades mm. in a row, because you'd have to call him player of the definitely, 2000s. Yeah, He's probably the, the first player to be even in contention as <laughs> well, player of the decade, two decades I, in a row. Yeah, but I think this is why, in a way, he's, it sounds a strange thing to say, but he's almost at a, a disadvantage in this argument because he was already, as you say, a top player, yeah, like a, a sort yeah. of Hall of Famer before the decade began, whereas Selby, he won, obviously, the Welsh, the Masters, but the question is, OK, can you con- continue that? Actually... Not only did he continue it, but he really stepped it up. Well, that's very much the point. If you'd asked people at the start of the 2010s, who's going to be the best player of the decade? I don't think anyone would have said no. Mark Selby. I think if you'd said who are going to be the best group of players, everyone would have put him in there. But if you were going to be asked who was, would be the very best, you might have said O'Sullivan. You might have said Neil Robertson, actually, at that time. Uh, Ding, who had just won his second UK title, how things have changed in the decade in between. Uh, you would have said him as well. You might even have said Trump because he was very young at the time, but we knew about his massive potential. I don't think anyone would have said Mark was going to be the best player of the decade. And more credit to him then for the fact that he did become that. He's someone who's always made the very uh, most of his ability. But that final in 2014, you know, everything hinged on that because O'Sullivan looked like, as I say, he was going to make it three in a row. He was starting to feel invincible at the Crucible, mm. I think. And then he was in that strong position in the final. Selby had you know, really had to grind it out in the semi, whereas O'Sullivan had finished his semi quite early. And then he got off to you know, a fine start. He was well in front. And then it all just turned around. And I think that's affected O'Sullivan's psyche in every sense, and particularly in a world championship sense ever since. So that's why that, to me, is the most significant match of the decade. And on the basis of that, why I would make Selby the player of the 2010s. Well, it, I think that final definitely, I think it planted a seed in Ronnie's mind that sort of said the World Championship is now too hard. Um, mm. Because you listen to him now, every time he talks about it, he describes it as a slog, <coughs> yeah. which he never used to do. I mean, it's always been, obviously, the tournament's never changed. It's been a long tournament. But the idea that you play for 16 days, 17 days, you're in front by quite a long way in the final, looking certain to win. And as you say, then that's six and the chance to equal Henry, overtake him. Suddenly it all turns round on the last day. And you think, what was all the effort for? Mm. And I think almost sort of on a subconscious level now, it's just, just too, like too much effort, you know. I mean, and let's be honest, winning it five times is pretty good. You know, no, one, no one's saying it isn't, but you're absolutely right. In some ways, that match is probably the most significant match played of the whole decade in terms of what it did to two careers and the game in general. And um, he, he'd not experienced that before, yeah. being there at the end of the World Championship as the runner-up, and, and he didn't like it. And his, his approach to the World Championship has just got, you know, it's deteriorated ever since. And look at what happened against James Cahill. I mean, he was just a wreck. Mm. He didn't look to me like he was comfortable being there at all. And it's highly unlikely this would happen, but you wouldn't completely rule out that he might do what he's done with the Masters and just say, I can't face it this year and don't want to play. Maybe not this year, but maybe some year in the near future. But if, you are, if we are going to talk about O'Sullivan and the World Championship and major moments of the decade, then clearly we've got to talk about what had happened the year before, which was unbelievable. Yes. When <laughs> he had won the championship in 2012, yeah. quite comfortably, really, um, and then, you know, I, I, he was having all sorts of problems, it seemed. Whatever the reasons were anyway, we can speculate about that all day. He didn't play, basically, for the, for the following season. He did play in one PTC and went out of it early on. When that news came through, that I don't think greatly surprised us, actually, that he was going to defend his title in 2013. I think most of us thought, well, he might get through the first round, maybe the second round. But once he gets to the later stages... 
That's, that was at a time when you still had all those PTCs, European Tour events, whatever. So everyone else was going in, massively played in, and the standards were soaring at that time. You thought, surely Ronnie O'Sullivan, even he, can sit it out for the year, then come in and beat all those players at the World Championship. But then by the time he gets to the semi-finals and then into the final, you're thinking, wow, he could actually do this here. And sure enough, he did. Absolutely amazing to be able to do that. I mean, it's not like you could come back in after... You take, for example, Monica Seles, who was out for maybe two years, and she won her first tournament back on the women's tennis circuit, but that was just a regular event. To go into the World Championship, which is, as you say, such a slog, and to win it after basically not playing for a year, absolutely astonishing. And I think if you're going to look at the single achievement of the decade, it's got to be that. Yeah, I think well, it shows how brilliant he is, but also his star quality. I think the, just the fact that he hadn't been at any tournaments, and suddenly it's a bit like... It, it, the sort of classic cliche in EastEnders when someone walks into the Vic and all the music stops, everyone stops talking, which would never happen in any pub ever in the world. But it's like, oh, Ronnie's back, and everyone's looking around, and he's got this sort of aura, and and you know the fact that he, like you say, hadn't actually had any match play all, all year, played mm. one PTC, I think. But you know, so what? Um, yeah, it was an incredible achievement, and and because he did that, then you do think, oh, he's going to carry on winning mm. it and winning it and winning it. Well, let's talk about some of Ronnie's other. Um, moments. I mean, he seemed to make a, a, a great habit in the last decade of winning the new tournaments. You know, the, yeah. sort of, some of the one-table ones, the Champion of Champions. He's won, uh, obviously, the New Tour Championship, Players' Championship, World Grand Prix, all these events. Um, hasn't always given the impression that he's sort of enjoying it, but I suspect he enjoys winning. He's got to, and he'll enjoy the money, I imagine. He's talked a lot about uh, what he wants tournaments to be over the years. This is the thing with Ronnie. He wants tournaments to be played where suits him, when suits him, <laughs> against players who play in a style that suits him. Now, actually, most of the top players now do play in a style mm. that suits him because they're all kind of fast and attacking and fluent most of the time. He gets to turn up, play for a few days. It, it becomes very intense, actually. You spend most of your time on the table and in the arena, and he actually likes that. Maybe at the World Championship it's a bit too long for him. But very often as well, I've noticed this, he seems to be scheduled quite late in the early rounds. Mm. So then he's going straight into the later rounds. After that, there's not much time in between. It just really suits him. And it's funny, like, he thrives on the big occasions, the one-table environment, with the big crowds and everybody looking at him, up to a point. You know, I think when the pressure reaches its absolute utmost at the World Championship, and now it seems at the Masters, maybe it's too much for him. But to have all that limelight and to be there and to be the centre of attention and get the chance to, to show his skills... Without that absolute pressure of it being one of the prestige long-running titles, I think he, he deals with that very, very well. And also, of course, it suits his approach now because a lot of these events tend to be the biggest money events. Mm. He doesn't want to play in every event or anything like it, so he knows that if he wants to make a substantial living out of the game that he's become accustomed to, if he's only going to play in the biggest, most lucrative events, he's got to make sure he goes there in the right shape to mm. you know, win as many of them as he possibly can. Can he continue to do that now at his age with... Players like Trump around, I suppose we're going to find out over the next year or two. He might not even be in them all, actually, because there's real doubt in terms of the Players' Championship and the Tour Championship for this season. But basically, yeah, he has done great in them, and I think it's largely because they're made for him. Yeah, what he has done, of course, he has taken a few of Stephen Hendry's records, you know, mm. most Masters, uh, most UKs, although Steve Davis, of course, held that, held that record. Uh, most of the Triple Crowns, he's levelled, as we speak now, with... Uh, ranking events. So in the last ten years, you know, he has some of those some of those records that stood as old oak trees. You think they're never going to yeah, fall? Yeah, have yeah. Have fallen, and 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 that sort of um, shows, you know, his level of success. Very briefly on Trump, um, he sort of I think the story of his decade was he arrived with a with a massive sort of um, you know like a firework sort of just exploded into the game as a top player. A lot of people who only watched the big events would have seen him at the World Championship for the first time. 
there was a dip definitely as the decade went on. He was still winning tournaments, but he wasn't consistent. But then he's ended it on a massive up. Has there ever been a tournament remembered so much for the player who lost in the final mm. more than the player who won it than the 2011 World Championship? That was a brilliant fortnight. And, you know, in terms of uh, defending champions losing on the opening day, I think that was one of the least surprising ones because uh, Trump had just won the China Open. Um, so it, it wasn't that big a surprise actually that he went and beat Neil Robertson and there was just a feeling actually the way he was playing that he was going to go on from there and have a great championship and he obviously worked his way through the rounds great semi-final against Ding Junhui and then the final of course he was leading overnight against John Higgins and I'm going to say this actually I think he threw it away a bit because John played brilliantly on the second day but Judd his performance on the Monday was really strange because all through the championship, the crowd had warmed to him so much and the viewers had warmed to him so much, largely because of some unbelievable shots he was playing in the, in the mould of Jimmy White, Alex Higgins, the crowd favourites of the past. He was still doing that on the Monday and not just you know at a stage where the frame was worn off and he was doing it at key moments, but then he missed so many easy balls and the one that sticks in my, my mind is when it looked like he was going to go back to 17-16. He missed this simple pink. Higgins ends up winning that frame, and it goes 18-15. I think he was just distracted a bit by all the razzmatazz that went with it. Well, he'd never, be, he'd never been ahead in the world final before. Yeah. He never played in the world final, yeah. and he's only, he was only 21, wasn't he? Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can make, you can make, I don't like to use the word excuses, you can point to reasons maybe why he did throw it away, but I always feel that he did, actually. Mm. And I think that affected the rest of the decade for him, because he still had... You know, he knew everyone was talking about him as a potential future world champion. He hadn't got over the line and got the job done yet. In fact, he hadn't been back in the final until just a few months ago. Uh, so it was a fitting way, actually, for the decade to end. But how well did he play in 2019 at the Crucible? And that was after struggling through the early rounds. I mean, it might never have happened. He could very easily have gone out. But it was a great narrative of the decade, wasn't it? It's, it's amazing. It's almost like every season we were talking about, oh, the old Judd is gone. You know, there's a new one now. He's more mature. He's got different shot selection. We were saying that every year. And every time we said it, we thought, well, maybe it's going to be his, his year at the Crucible. It never was until uh, the very last one of the decade. And it's funny now, you almost looked at it and thought, oh, your time's running out from a bit because players don't tend to win it for the first time much beyond the age of 30. And yet now that he has won it for the first time, we're looking at it and saying he's got years and years to add to it. Let's just quickly uh, just look at a few sort of of the of the great sort of landmark moments. I mean, a couple of century landmarks. Obviously, Neil Robertson making 103 centuries in the season. Yeah. You'd never have thought that could have happened because there just weren't enough events. Yeah. Um, and the discipline that he showed to actually do it as well, amazing. And of course, Ronnie O'Sullivan making his thousandth career century. That was a great moment in, in Preston last year. Um, what are the sort of moments can you think of that, uh, that I mean you mentioned the, the Selby final um, there's mm. so much has happened you sort of forget don't you like because you, there's no time to, even for the players now to sort of really dwell on anything you're just straight into the next tournament for me it's always world finals you know because there's just so much more at stake it stands out so much from the rest one that doesn't actually get talked about a lot was the, the Bingham final yeah. against Sean Murphy I mean you know we talked uh, on the podcast after the final uh, saying maybe it was the highest quality world final that ever been but you know, that one in 2015 was right up there and, uh, you know, just incredible standards. And Bingham had actually done so well to get to that final. When you look at the players he'd beaten along the way, O'Sullivan in the quarters, Trump in the semis. And that was a great story as well. It was sort of a, a bit like the Joe Johnson story, actually, of, of, of the uh, 2010s. The difference being that, that Stewart had actually been a tournament winner before that, whereas Joe hadn't. Uh, we mentioned the 2011 final. That was a standout moment. Having our first Australian world champion, actually, even though it wasn't a particularly memorable final by any means, 
aired that one. Um, well, also, I mean, I think I'm going to cut to the chase. Match, yeah. match the, like you say, if you think of match the decade, and there's been some great finals we saw, Champion Champions recently, but you do come back to the World Championship, you come yeah. back to the Crucible. Uh, 2018, Williams, yeah. Williams Higgins. I mean, the, st- the standard when Trump beat Higgins was, was fantastic, but it wasn't a close match. That was close. It had so many narratives, you know, uh, Mark coming back after years in the wilderness, Higgins, you know, looking to, to win his fifth. Two, you know, big time players delivering the goods. Yeah, I wasn't greatly excited about that final going into it, you know, because I, I, I don't like world finals where they've both won it before, right, yeah. because I like the sort of the narrative of someone trying to win it for the first mm. time. So when it's two past champions, I think I can't get too excited about this. At the end of it, I was sitting in the in the front row in the in the press seats for that entire final session, literally heart in mouth for the for the whole evening. And when it got back to fifteen all, actually. The sting went out of it a bit for me because I thought, well, I mean, John's got all the momentum. He's clearly going to win it now. Well, how wrong I was. And, you know, there was still so much drama to come. I think in terms of match of the decade, I will definitely agree with you on that. If we were to have another category called best final session of the decade, it would win it by an absolute landslide because nothing comes, comes close to it at all. I remember going home and saying to my wife, oh, it was the best world final ever. And she said, you say that every year. <laughs> but it's funny now, two years on is long enough to look back and actually <clears throat> say... You know, you're looking at it from a distance. Yes, it still does stand the test of time for me. Is I think for real snooker people, that was the greatest yeah. final. A lot, you know, the more of the general public might still who were around in those days might still talk about '85. They might talk about some of the Henry White finals. But in terms of you know pure snooker quality and the narrative and everything and the drama, uh, yeah, I think that stands to me as, as probably the greatest match there's ever been. Yeah. Finally, then let's look forward. Yeah. Um, we've looked back. Let's forward. Uh, even Barry Hearn is not going to live forever, um, and ten years from now, it's very unlikely he'll be running World Snooker. The likes of Ronnie and John and Mark will be in their fifties. Mm. Um, even Trump's going to be forty. So, what does the future hold? It's very hard to say. I think I would say two things. One, there's no let up in the popularity of snooker on television. But where are the new players coming from? Um, we know in the UK a lot of clubs have shut down, etc., etc. So there aren't as many new new faces coming through. We keep always keep talking about China, but they've got to start actually winning tournaments. You can't, you mm. know, they, there's 21 players on the circuit, but you know, Yanping Tao won one, but okay, the, the rest are not actually winning events. Um, so where's the professional game going to be ten years from now? Well, I mean, <laughs> funny enough, I'm, I'm just thinking, actually, we talked about Higgins and Williams. Another final that stood out for me in the decade was right at the start of it, the UK final they played against each other in 2010. That was a standout one as well. So that's, that kind of underlines the point that at the start of the decade, they were playing each other in a great final and they felt like old stagers then. And towards the end of the decade, they played in another one. So that shows how little change there's been. Okay, Ronnie O'Sullivan, in 10 years' time, if he maintains the desire... I think he will be still very firmly inside the top 16, even in his 50s. I don't see any reason why he wouldn't be. I mean, you look at golf, someone like Phil Mickelson closing in on 50. He won a big event last year. Golf's a more physically demanding sport. I think, yeah, I think the, the, the only thing against that, I know what you mean, but I think one thing that ne- very rarely gets talked about is Snoopy is eyesight. And yeah. typically in your mid-40s, your eyesight starts to go. Um, Who said that? I don't <laughs> yeah. see anyone. Uh, and, and that, you know... Even Ronnie, you know, he's not maybe won't be immune to that. It, it, he's very physically. I'm sure he'll still be physically in shape. Like you say, desire is important, but there may be little issues like that. You know, you do, you do start to degrade as you get older. Yeah, don't you? and and that's why that's why I don't think he'll be one of the very top players. But I still think he'll be competitive. I still think he could win tournaments. And look, they can do amazing things with eyesight nowadays. Even yeah. a very young man like Judd Trump. He had the laser. He, yeah. Django spent years trying to talk him into it, and eventually he agreed. 
and look what's happened to him since. So, yes, that's a factor, but I think it's something that he can overcome. Uh, John Higgins, again, I think if he has the desire, he's still an unbelievably good player. Uh, so I, th- I, I think, think he could outlast them all. Yeah, was, actually. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because <laughs> he's just so clever. Yeah, and, and the thing about John is he had his kids very young, mm. so they'll all be grown up. He won't have as much domestic responsibility. Mm. Well, what's he going to do with his time? You know, what are you going to do? You're going to sit at home, or are you going to come and play mm. in the biggest snooker tournaments mm. in the world? Mark, not so much mm. because I don't know if he'll even still be playing in ten years' time. Actually, I feel he's at a stage now where he wants to you know, look for an exit strategy at this stage. He was looking for one a couple of years ago and then he went and won the World Championship. The old Prince Harry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, Topical. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, where will he be in a decade's time? <laughs> so, yeah, Ronnie and John, if, if they maintain that desire and other things are, are all right with them, things like, you know, illness and age and all that, don't catch up with them too much, they can still be up there. Okay, well, well yeah. we've got, we've got, we've got, we've got to run out of time. Yeah. So, last question then. Yeah. And it's impossible to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Yeah. Who's going to be the player of this decade? Judd Trump. Trump. Judd yeah? Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who else is it going to be? <laughs> I'll put it this way. The only way I think that won't happen... Oh, okay. I think it'll be a big surprise if Judd isn't the best player of the decade, unless it's some incredible wonder kid yeah. who we've not heard about yet. Selby will still be around. I think Karen Wilson will have a really good decade. He's got the commitment. He's still so young. The Chinese players, I mean, Ding will be around for a while yet. Uh, I think Yan Bing Tao looks like the most likely. Lu Hong Hao looks like a particularly promising player. Xiao Tong as well. The Chinese players are the ones who look the most promising now. But as you rightly say, very few of them have proved it on any sort of consistent basis. But you seem surprised by that. I mean, why would you think Judd wouldn't be the player of the day? No, I'm not saying he wouldn't. But I suppose it is the unknown quantity like coming through. The thing is, what's changed is like we knew about Judd Trump when he was eight years old. I can't point to any like eight-year-old that we know about in the junior ranks because mm. the junior ranks aren't as aren't as buoyant as they once were. So you can't say, oh, that we know this kid, and in a few years' time, in terms of pro, he's going to be a world beater. Can't really think of anyone who, who fulfills that. But that's what I'm saying. But, you know, mm. we might not have heard of someone like that now. Yeah. I mean, you think of like the Williams sisters in tennis. No one had really heard yeah. much about them until around the time they were coming on the circuit. All right, final final question. If we do this podcast again in 2030, there's a thought. Mm. Will the world championship still be at the Crucible? It's there, till, Ooh, yeah. it's there till, I think, 2027, yeah, I, isn't it? I, I can't answer that. And, you know, it's part of the wider you know, question. Probably won't be any Barry Hearn. No, pro- pro- probably not. Um, but that, that's part of the wider context. What will the circuit as a whole look like mm. at the end of the decade? Will there be more events in China? Will China have trailed off a bit? Yeah. Uh, what will it be like in the UK? Will it still be commanding the big TV audiences? You know, will the younger generation be watching it? Will there be enough of the older generation still around to keep it going? I, my inclination is to say yes, but... But if we are looking back in 10 years' time and we're sitting at Championship League in Beijing or something do, doing this podcast then, I, I don't think that would be a massive surprise either. It's, it's, it's so hard to say. So much has happened in the last 10 years. We started the podcast by saying, even in our most optimistic expectations, we couldn't have seen it evolving the way it has. And I'm sure there'll be all sorts of surprises. And any predictions we might make, if we made a list of 10 predictions for the next decade, probably at least half of them would turn out to be wildly wrong. Mm, well, yeah, that, that's not, that would not be unknown for us. Um, mm. Okay, well, what because one thing that did happen in the last de- decade is this podcast began, and mm. hopefully we'll continue with coming up very soon to our 100th episode, so we're looking forward to that. In the meantime, here's to the next 10 years. Sports Social Podcast Network.